I've got a floating lab myself, Dr. Ritter told us. Not far from here, as a matter of fact. Ah, yes, we marine biologists are a noble bunch, don't you think, Dr. Deep? Studying the mysteries of the sea, it's the last true frontier on Earth, I always say. Dr. D trailed after him. Yes, the last frontier, he agreed. What are you working on, if I may ask? Dr. Ritter said. Dr. D cleared his throat. Oh, I've got a couple of projects going. I can't really talk about it now. They're in the early stages, I'm sure you understand. Yes, indeed. I guess we should be leaving, Dr. Ritter said. I'm glad you're safe. By the way, you haven't seen anything strange in the waters around here lately, have you? Odd fish, unusual creatures, anything like that? We've seen all kinds of weird stuff, I gushed. My goldfish turned into giants, and we saw huge jellyfish, bigger than a car. Ow! Something sharp poked me in the ribs, my uncle's elbow. Whoops. I'm sorry to hear that, Dr. Ritter said. I'm sorry you saw those creatures, Billy, because now I can't let you go. Hello, and welcome to Say Podcast and Die, the podcast where two queers sit in their closet and talk to you about science gone bad. Oh yeah, so much goosebumps is about science gone bad. It's true. I'm Alyssa. I'm Andy. And today we are talking about Goosebumps number 58, Deep Trouble 2. Yes. The sequel no one asked for. <laughs> the twinning. Yeah, it says on the cover, something's fishy. Again. <laughs> I actually really like this cover. It's got a bright orange fish who seems almost to be modeled on the bulldog from the different Goosebumps covers. You know, the one who's friends with Curly? I would have said the praying mantis from Shocker on Shock Street, actually, because oh. it's got these like sort of bulging eyes and these like jowly cheeks. I was thinking about the underbite, but mm. yeah, it does actually, its eyes look a lot like the praying mantis. You're totally right. And it's just kind of looking mad at us. Oh, for me, I was interpreting it as looking at us like, huh? <laughs> Maybe it's Billy as a fish then. Because yeah. I think that's his, his main expression. It's true. Yeah. So we return to Billy Deep. Do you want to give us the giant seagull's eye view of the plot? It has been one year since the events of Deep Trouble One, placing this in 1995, you would say? That's right. Oh, man. Between Monster Blood 3... Goosebumps, I want you to keep this in mind. And The Haunted Mask too. Billy and his sister Sheena are once again aboard the Cassandra with their uncle, Dr. Deep. They are doing a lot of snorkeling as Dr. Deep is ignoring them and doing experiments. There seem to be a lot of creatures of unusual sizes, like a minnow that is 10 times the size that it's supposed to be, more than 10 times. And then there's also this plankton that Dr. D has been studying that they give to Billy's goldfish and his aquatic snail, makes them grow bigger. And they're dealing with this when they're boarded by another marine biologist, Dr. Ritter and his two assistants, who say, oh, have you noticed anything unusual? And when they say yes, they're like, ah, that was our stuff. We can't let you leave. Do they say yes or... Oh, Billy says yes. Yeah. yeah. Billy, Billy blows it. Billy has learned literally nothing, literally nothing over the past year's events, including respect for marine life. Hijinks ensue in which Dr. Ritter and his henchmen are trying to kill them. They end up briefly stranded on a desert island. They end up back on the Cassandra. And then Dr. Ritter reveals that he has been engineering plankton in order to embiggen sea life, in order to solve world hunger, question mark. And then also if humans drink the plankton, for some reason they will turn into fish. There's another struggle. Dr. Ritter turns into a fish. Billy, uh, there's whatever it we'll get to it but then and then the, our last fake out is maybe sheena will also turn into a fish question mark whatever we'll get to it is a good way of putting <laughs> how much plot really happens in this book like there's desert islands there's storms there's rescue dolphins a lot happens mm -hmm. and yet 
it feels like not a lot happened. Yeah, we're we're back to the you know one or two sentence per paragraph, very short chapters, scene, scene, scene. Like here's a set piece. It almost feels like you're on a Disney ride, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like this is the this scene, and this is the this scene, and it's all kind of disconnected. Yeah, there are a lot of here's an idea. Now let's move to the next idea. Now let's it's move to the next idea. Like early filmmaking, just tableaus. Yeah. All right, let's get into it. You know, when we did the Amazon review episode that covered this, everyone, it's about freaking mermaids. Yeah, everyone was so mad. Yeah, this is a girl book or whatever. Yeah. Oh, so the, and yeah, so this one sort of corrects that. Is no mermaids in this book? That's what I was wondering, as if Arlstein had gotten some angry fan mail. I also wonder if there are any Amazon reviews that say there are no freaking mermaids. <laughs> well, we'll get to it. Huh? <laughs> we should do some more of those. So we're back in the Caribbean. But I don't know if we're in the same place, but there is still fire coral. Right away, I was thinking, they must not have told Billy and Sheena's parents about what happened last summer. Like when they were put in a cage and almost drowned in the ocean. Because why would they send them back to Dr. Deep if that were the case? And they don't learn things on this trip, right? The parents are like, oh, you'll learn something about science. And no, they just go do dangerous swimming all day. No, the parents learn about free childcare. Yeah, I guess so. It's it's that is really the thing for so many goose parents. Sheena and Doctor Deep seem to have figured out we're not telling people, mm-hmm. but Billy, I guess, just is telling people and not being believed. And he's thirteen now, so like some of his actions, he should really be a little quicker on the uptake. He's clinging to his youth, <laughs> and then also he's like, now this summer I'm going to make another discovery. Something big. And didn't we talk before, Billy, about how you didn't discover the mermaids? They just exist already? I mean, we didn't talk about that with him. We talked about it with each other. I just thought that was He lives in his, his own little world. For a lot of this book, I was not sure what was a fantasy and what was real. And mm-hmm. sometimes something would turn out to be real and I'd be like, oh, shit, I should have been taking notes on that. <laughs> giant jellyfish. Yeah. For example. But not giant octopus, which is what happens in the first pages of the book, but it turns out that it's Sheena and he tickles her to get free from her grasp. Yeah, but there's this whole part where he's imagining himself wrestling her as an octopus, and I'm just curious what's actually happening here. Is she trying to drown him? Or is she just swimming by him? Well, anyway, he says that he's a snorkeling hero, which made me picture a really unsanitary version of Guitar Hero. You, like, (laughs) pass around a mask. Yeah. (laughs) Sheena is also the scully of Billy and Sheena. Uh, She hates games and loves facts. I really like that about her. And she Mm -hmm. gets super focused. And Billy's like, ah, she gets super focused all the time on school and stuff and swimming and doing things. And it's like, Billy, you get... Paying attention to her surroundings like a chump. But, like, that's the thing. He also gets super focused on pretending people are octopuses. Yeah. He just doesn't get focused on facts. No. (laughs) This is the tragic story of a boy's retreat into his own fantasy life. Yeah, it's true. Billy still likes to play tricks on Sheena, which I believe is from the first book. And so he pretends to be a shark <laughs> by, like, grabbing a pillow, a putting it on its back. gray vinyl pillow. How does he swim like that? I don't know. Probably really awkwardly. And she screams, but it turns out there's actually a shark. A uh, giant shark. A giant shark. And it chases them to the boat and then disappears. And Dr. D had told them that there were no sharks of that size in this area. Which I have a couple problems with this whole scene. One is he's like... Oh, you can swim. There's no big sharks. Big sharks aren't usually the dangerous ones. <laughs> Tiger sharks are dangerous. Mm-hmm. But, like, a whale shark is kind of chill. Yeah. So, first it's of all... like, you are no threat to me. Obviously, we've already questioned Dr. D's parenting skills, but I also question his science skills. Yeah, no shit. He's just on a boat by himself 
we'll we'll talk about it very shortly, but I don't think he's doing science. I don't think he's attached to a university. He had a grad assistant last time. Maybe he was fired Ah. after this and he's just like on a boat. Yeah, it's collecting like fish and measuring them. There's been some equipment reduction, which mm-hmm. I think might be something you're pointing towards. But then the other thing is Billy says regarding Sheena, I want to scare her but good. And I was just <laughs> like, ah yes, this is being narrated by a middle aged man, in fact. <laughs> and not a thirteen year old. <laughs> yeah. Not bad. I wanna scare her but but good. I wanna scare her but good. <laughs> so they go to tell Dr. D about this and he again says there are no large sharks. But let me show you this fish that I have in my boat. And so what he's done is he's caught this fish and he's not going to release it until he can identify it from all of his books. So the fish just has to wait here while he goes through all of his fucking books. And it's like, what kind of fish are you? Ah, you're this kind. You may go now. You know how scientists do. (laughs) They pull out when they want to identify a fish. They pull out a book with a bunch of pictures of fish (laughs) and pick the one little one inch by two inch photo and that's how they identify fish, right? Am I right? Yeah. I that's mean, foolproof. Exactly. That's what Goosebumps has taught me. Yeah. I think he might be a scientist the way the parents and my best friend is invisible are scientists. And the way that people in the 19th century were scientists. <laughs> He's saying, like, I can't find it in my books. And Billy pulls out a, a book and finds a picture that matches, but it's a minnow. And they're like, this can't be a minnow. It's so big. It's the size of a large dog. But then they say it's four feet long. I'm like, that is a large dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Small pony, maybe. Yeah. Great Dane. A large pony? I don't know how long things are. I don't know either. Yeah. I think you measure ponies in hands. Oh. But I think that's height, so I don't know how long things no, I are think, either. I think you're right. It is one of those weird things where it's like <laughs> stones and hands and bushels. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Sorry, this book's just so silly. Yeah. And then Dr. D has also been collecting plankton, which he then suggests for fucking no reason that Billy feed to his goldfish because they will like it. It's a really upsetting journey these goldfish go on. Yeah, right away I wrote, is this going to be monster blood? And it kind of is monster blood. I don't think you should feed saltwater plankton to goldfish. Freshwater goldfish, which it is specified that they are. Also, I think he's wrong about what plankton are, but okay. Well, aren't they like little creatures that own restaurants? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Not very good restaurants. Yeah. And like do shenanigans. Yeah. And yeah, so he just takes one of his research specimens and says, here, feed this to your goldfish. They will (laughs) like it. So Billy is like, oh, geez, that's a great idea. And he runs off to his his goldfish bowl. But there's a human head in it. It's actually a doll head, which is a prank by Sheena, which is a lot more original than his, I I must say. And she was really thoughtful. She took the fish and snail out first and put them in a different bowl. Yeah. So he puts the fish and snail back and he gives them the plankton. He then goes out to snorkel again and to think of an even better prank. And he goes swims out pretty far, even though he's, again, supposed to stay close to the boat. Dr. D is a shit babysitter because he's not paying attention to any of this. And Sheena joined him and she goes out swimming even further than him. And she swims right into something pink and rubbery, like a soft blob of bubble gum that's as big as a car. And, quote, swallows her like a clam, but is a jellyfish. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of hard to picture because a bivalve swallows things, I feel like, differently than a squishy blob. Yeah. I don't know. I was surprised this wasn't a fake out. I was, too. I thought Um, it was kind of good. I agree. The other thing I liked is he tries to grab it, but it's like grabbing jello. Yeah, I know. It's upsetting. It'd be so stressful. And mm-hmm. then he just decides he's going to swim into its mouth and try to pull her out. Well, obviously, he gets stuck too. But then it just lets him go because it's Phantom Menace. There's always a bigger fish style off to fight a different jellyfish. Yeah. My next note is oh, shit. It seems like that actually happened. Yeah. The jelly fight also starts making lots of waves, like not 
you know, just making waves, (laughs) making lots of change, but literal waves in the ocean. (laughs) It's making real waves. (laughs) So they swim back to the boat and they can't find Dr. D. And as they're looking, the boat shakes and rattles as if it's an earthquake. And Billy incorrectly suggests that they can't experience an earthquake on water, which they absolutely can. (laughs) How can it be an earthquake? Sea isn't on the earth. Yeah. But what's shaking it is actually a giant snail. Just to sidebar for a second, this is how little these kids have been learning going to the sea every summer. (laughs) Uh, they, they've learned nothing about the ocean, including that it's located on land. On that is the on earth. the earth, it's yeah. over the land. It yes. doesn't hover. <laughs> like there's no void beneath it. Although, uh. who knows in the goose first? Because I ha- I did notice while reading this, I was thinking, you know, we've seen all this. You know, there's these giant sea monsters unleashed now. Have we encountered them? But we've almost never gone to the beach in the goose first. Except the ghost beach. Except the ghost beach. But we really don't go to the ocean. And so I'm wondering how far is the ocean from the land in the goose verse. I think we just have lots of landlocked children who are like, mm. we'll go to the lake. Yes. Yeah, well, it's written by a guy from Ohio. It's That's, true. Yes. <laughs> they think the snail is talking to them, but actually it's Dr. Deep asking for help because he's underneath the snail being drowned in its slime, which oh, genuinely yeah. gross. This was disgusting because Billy describes how it's clear he's like choking on and swallowing the slime. I can't even think about it. That's so upsetting. Yeah. At first they decide they're going to do some cow tipping to get it off him, but then they decide to use the slime to their advantage. <laughs> and so they push. There's some good thinking, some good physics. Yeah. It was really hard not to see a birth metaphor here because they're yelling, push, and it's slimy. And then there's a guy emerges from it. Uh Oh, nice. So this is a rebirth moment for Dr. Deep. I really would have thought that you would have thought you would have picked up on that, too. It is at my alley, and I love that you came up with it. (laughs) I would like to hear how you would fit that into your analysis of Dr. Deep's role in this two book arc. Like, why is this where he gets reborn? It might suggest more that he's infantile and (laughs) shouldn't be in charge of children or of science. Actually, a really good point. So the boat seems to be tipping over and they hear boom, boom, boom. And it turns out it's the goldfish, which are also gigantic. This was bothering me. It was like these reveals are so slow. In other books where you've complained, why don't they just make the connection? Typewriter equals magic or whatever. I think it's kind of unfair because these are people who have never experienced anything otherworldly. But in this book, they fucking have. They know they're mermaids. They're not quick on the uptake. And that bugged me. Cause and effect is really hard for them. Yeah. It's like talking to somebody when they're, you know what point they're making, but they're talking really slowly and you can't interrupt them to be like, yeah, I already get it. You just have to wait for them to finish their thought. And it's like, that's, that's the first 50 pages of this book. Are you talking about co-hosting with me? No, not at all. (laughs) I think you and I have made the same point about talking to people. Oh, yeah. No, it drives me nuts. I have a very hard time with it with jokes, especially. Yeah. Someone starts telling a joke and I'm like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to pretend to laugh. And I have to not laugh now. I have to laugh when they finish it. Yeah. (laughs) And it's going to look fake and weird. Billy says he feels like he's living in some kind of dinosaur world, but with sea creatures. (laughs) Which is also a dinosaur world slash our world. I did think that that was a really funny analogy. It's like I'm living in a dinosaur world, but with fish. Yeah. Which, at that point, it prompted me to go Google what sea creatures exist that also existed, you know, in the time of the dinosaurs or were similar or whatever. And then it was making this list of animals. And then I realized I'm just bored. That's why I'm doing this. It's not actually relevant to the podcast. Do you want to share some? Just because I like hearing about sea creatures. Well, so I did learn about something that I never knew before. Super fucking weird animal called a frilled shark. Let me get, get a picture of it for you. Frilled. It sounds fancy. Shark, I'm picturing shark. like a 18th century dandy. <laughs> huh. 
That's a Sando Aqua monster is what that is, which is the monster from when Qui-Gon Jinn says there's always a bigger fish. It <laughs> comes and eats the Colo Claw fish and the other the other one. Yeah. So apparently this is considered um, a living fossil because its closest relations are only known from the fossil record. It's so cute. It looks like an eel kind of. Yeah. With well, little feet. And that's, yeah. And that's, it's got eel-like traits, which are considered like sort of more prehistoric. Yeah. Um, and... They're now endangered because they're fucking bycatch. What's bycatch? Um, so when oh. ships trawl and they pick yeah. up stuff because they're farming Why? shrimp or whatever, they get caught up in there. Oh, my God. Lampreys are also super old, 360 million years. Yeah, they seem old. But yeah. It's like before we developed faces as a technology. <laughs> Pygmy right whale, oh, which yeah. something else I learned, and then I promise we'll get back to the book. This one is it's disputed whether or not it's a living fossil because what it belongs to is called a wastebasket taxon, which is where <laughs> basically they come up with a taxonomic category, which is everything else that doesn't fit into the other categories, ah. which is, again, sounds super scientific, but made me wonder, are any of our horror taxons? Sodomies, waste bags, basket taxons. Oh, we'll have to think about that. Goosepunks, if you think of any that are just like the other stuff. Yeah, some we have lots of stuff like crocodile, nautilus, etc. That like at least their ancestors for something similar lived during the time of the dinosaurs. But the other thing is so like lots of these are endangered because humans, except for jellyfish. Because they do really well in, like, polluted warm waters. Yes. I've heard this before. Jellyfish are thriving. And mm-hmm. sometimes they accidentally shut down power plants because they like to um, congregate around the waste sort yeah. of waste area. Yeah. They bloom. Good for jellyfish. I mean, someone's got to take care of these issues. <laughs> but, yeah, ugh, everything I hear about sea creatures just makes me so sad. Sad slash terrified. My policy is just stay away from the sea. Appreciate it from a distance. I mean, in my notes more than once, I put, like, don't go on boats is the moral here. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, the weight of these goldfish is pulling them over and they seem to be moving around. But you would think that being out of water, they'd just be suffocating horribly because of the pressure difference. Yes. I think a lot of this is bad. And also the lack of oxygen that they can actually process. So then they throw them overboard, even though they're freshwater fish. These fish die a horrible death. They really do. They did not deserve this. That's got to be painful, right? If you normally breathe in freshwater. And also you were just not breathing for a long time. Yeah, I think they die a horrible death. And they decide they're going to deal with a snail later. But once they're done with the fish, three... (laughs) They get invaded by New Englanders. <laughs> Did you hear the description of their outfits? No, tell me. Uh, three people wearing shorts, button-down shirts, and boating shoes <laughs> show up. So it's just like three... We're here from the New England Yachting Club. Yeah, it's just a bunch of mass holes. <laughs> they all have, like, Kennedy accents. Yeah, so they say they noticed the boat was in trouble. It's Dr. Ritter and his assistant, Adam Brown and Mel Mason. Dr. Ritter ha- also has a sea lab and is extremely self-aggrandizing. Yes, he's like, oh, my profession's so noble. And I was like, ugh. I also read that part at the beginning and I, I flipped him off while she was reading. <laughs> yeah, it was hard not to stop and comment on the fact that you were doing that. I just, it doesn't make sense. He's like, I love studying the mysteries of the sea. It's the last frontier. And it's like, so what you're saying is you want there to be no frontiers. You want to uncover all these mysteries so no one the lack of a frontier is a problem for someone else who isn't as important (laughs) right this isn't space the final frontier i guess they're not thinking big and again we don't know where the goose verse is and if it's in space you know we don't know any of this Alyssa. that's fair where is the ocean relevant to the land yeah space ocean dr ritter asks if they've seen anything unusual and dr d is like no no nothing unusual and billy's like oh we have we've seen all these giant things and dr deep keeps elbowing him being like shut up and billy just doesn't get it and sheena's like no don't worry my brother's just really stupid he's (laughs) he's a liar who's stupid (laughs) 
Dr. Ritter is like, well, now we can't let you go. And she's like, no, 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 he's just dumb. And seems to be working until the snail comes sort of crashing into view. I like the snail. I wonder what happens to him. I hope I hope it's okay. There's a lot of also, as a fellow scientist, blah, 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 crap, where they're trying to be like, look, we're the same. Yeah. And Dr. D is trying to reason with him. It's very Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. Mm-hmm. And so then we get the whole explanation of what this scheme is, as Alyssa mentioned. We're injecting growth hormones into plankton beds, just in the open water, not yeah, in the lab. Not in the lab, in the open water. To try to make giant fish and end world hunger. Another thing we learn is that if a human takes this plankton growth hormone, we don't know this at this point, but if they take this plankton, like drink it, they turn into a fish. But birds don't. Birds just get bigger. Yeah. There's a lot <laughs> weird about this, but isn't there an implicit Soylent Green narrative there? Yes. Thanks for thanks for scooping oh, my text on. Never mind. Never mind. I'm sorry. We no, can, it's okay. We can take that out. No, it's okay. I love that. Yes, we were you're right. Together. You would. You were. You. So I actually hadn't thought about that very logical chain. I just I brought it up for other reasons. But oh, um, good. Phew. Yes. So theoretically, you could catch a fish and not know it was once a human and eat it. Uh-huh. Which is very fairy tale. Well, that's what Doctor Deep says too. He goes, "What is this? A fairy tale?" Yeah. So Dr. Ritter both thinks he's going to solve world hunger and doesn't want Dr. D to steal his ideas. And Dr. D's like, I don't want to steal your terrible idea. Yeah. Which is clearly also a commentary on the highly competitive publisher parish nature of research. <laughs> but literally all Dr. D wants to do is look at fish and then look them up in a book. And then throw them back. Yeah. Yeah. It literally would never... He's not publishing it. Exactly. Uh, except maybe on his travel blog. On his blog. List of fish I have seen today. One maybe that's what he minnow. really... <laughs> That was it. It was it was a long day trying to identify this minnow. Maybe that's what he really does is he has a travel blog. Yeah. And he calls himself Dr. Deep. Uh-huh. But he's that's neither his name nor is he a doctor. But he tries to get really deep in his blog. <laughs> he thinks he's going getting deep sea fish, but he's like just off the coast. <laughs> so they force them onto their motorboat, which I was imagining just like a little motorboat, but it seems like it's their whole lab situation. This part got confusing for me too, because then suddenly they're pushing them below deck. So I was like, did they go from the motorboat to another boat? And we just didn't get that transition. Something was skipped. Mm-hmm. Unless there are motorboats that have a below deck area. Yeah. It, or Arlstein just couldn't think of the word for like ship or <laughs> yacht. I don't know. Yeah. And this is the only boat. kinds of boats I know. Kayak. Kayak. We learned in a escape room yesterday we had to think of a palindromic boat. Yeah. And <laughs> what is, I think, one of Billy's rare badass moves, Adam is tying him up and he just bites him. I actually really like that part. And he's like, hey, this kid bit me. Yeah. And then basically that serves to get Adam to tie him up less tightly. <laughs> and then, English words. Right. And then Dr. Ritter and Adam and mm-hmm. Mel I'll go up on deck to eat salads and sandwiches. I don't understand what their plan is exactly. So while the our trio are below deck, Dr. D points out that Dr. Ritter's idea has some serious blind spots. And then Billy gets free and starts untying the other ones. But then the other three have finished their salads and sandwiches and come back half. below deck. Oh, They half finish it. I don't oh. understand. They go up and eat half their lunch and then they come back down. I don't know. And then maybe that's why the seagulls come. Oh, to get the rest of their sandwiches? Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah, well, Dr. Ritter... Wants to throw them overboard. And Dr. D is trying to be the hero. Say, just throw me and not the kids. But Dr. Ritter is like, no, get rid of those children. Family togetherness. Yeah. Just as Billy is about to be thrown off, they think a helicopter is coming, but it is the giant seagulls. This is scary. Mm -hmm. A giant seagull? Yeah. Even a normal-sized seagull. They're aggressive. Oh, man. When I was in Chicago a few years ago, went through the Lincoln Park Zoo, 
and there were kids with popcorn being attacked by seagulls. <laughs> yeah. It's clear this is just what the seagulls do every day is they wait by the popcorn stand yeah. and then just dive bomb children so they drop their popcorn and run away. They're like, yes, easy prey. Yeah, no, I, I was <laughs> vividly remembering being on a beach with a friend who had just gotten like a thing of fries and a seagull came and just clopped her on the head and <gasps> took her fries. Where was that? Uh, this was in Germany. Oh, that's so scary. <laughs> Well, Dr. D shields the kids and they make a break for this rubber lifeboat that is on board of this bigger motorboat. And the kids get in and they see Mel aim a spear gun and fire it at Dr. D, which was actually scary. Mm-hmm. Although he manages to miss, even though it was at point blank. And so they get away. They're alone in this lifeboat. There are some waves and shit. It starts storming. They have to bail out water. And they fall asleep and wake up on a sandy beach. Yeah, well, that's lucky, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, a bunch of bad sea things happen all at once in the space of like 20 pages. So they're on an island. It's really small. It takes 10 minutes to walk around. I was really hoping we were going in a Dagon direction, but it did not happen. I thought it was going to be a Dagon thing, too, where they landed on a creature. Mm-hmm. But it had coconut trees growing on it, so then I was like, probably not. Yeah. So they eat some coconut. They catch some silverfish, which is written as one word, which made me wonder if Arlstein Ew. knows what a silverfish is. He lives in New York. He must. Yeah. Yeah. Because he clearly means small fish, but he wrote silverfish like the bugs. Ew. That might have been a correction error, but yeah. like, no, you don't eat those. Yeah. Somebody at Scholastic was just like not really paying attention. Kids, if you don't know what a silverfish is, don't Google it. And do just clean it under your kitchen sink and stuff. And bathroom, yeah. Yeah. Move your bathroom garbage and clean under it. <laughs> they also, so they catch these small fish and they're like, this is so unsatisfying. They can't catch the larger fish. And they wish they had some of that fucking plankton to feed them. So they're not so fucking high and mighty now, are they? Yes. This is, they could be helped out by the very sordid, foolish experiment that Dr. Ritter is running. Like, I'll turn my nose down at this until it could possibly help me. Yeah, I know. Billy splashes into the ocean and Andy's worst nightmare happens. Well, it happened to me once when we were at uh, Jacob Reese Beach. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a tiny crab that, yeah. that pinched my foot. And I freaked out and I ran out of the water <laughs> and I said, no more. <laughs> Well, this is a giant crab that grabs him and they all run away and they climb into a tree to escape and the crab sort of chases them and they fall, but the crab runs away. I mean, it's still a prey animal. It still doesn't want to get crushed. I don't see why people aren't more scared of getting pinched by crabs in the water. You don't know what it is. You feel a sharp pain. You don't know if you're about to have your foot bitten off. Like, you don't, you don't know if you stepped on a hypodermic needle. That's that's the scarier alternative. Where I was like, there was some broken glass in here. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sorry. But giant crab. Very cool. Very scary. Very sweetheart. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a good movie. We've brought up a bunch of times. Possibly I'm scooping your text on me again. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) They get to the beach and they realize the tide has carried their boat away because they're really bad at this. Oh, yeah. So they just hang out and eat some more coconut. And Sheena's like, I hate coconut. I'm not going to eat it even in candy bars. And I'm like, what about Chico sticks? I think that this is not going to be a long-lived resolution. You'd be missing out on so much. Almond Joy. Mm-hmm. It's like my two of my favorite candy bars. They also hear some gigantic dolphins who have apparently brought the lifeboat back. It got tangled in their rope. Oh. <laughs> so a very cut-up-your-plastic yeah. whatever yeah. kind of narrative. Very and 90s. My note here is, then it gets too stupid. <laughs> oh, now? Now is when it gets too stupid? Well, they got rescued by dolphins. That's so stupid, yeah. <laughs> and then the funny thing is, the dolphins bring them back to their own boat, but Billy thinks it's Dr. Ritter's boat, and he's like, stupid dolphins. Yeah, it's like, what does that have to do with the intelligence of the dolphins? They don't know the details of your life. And then it's his own boat. He just couldn't read, because he's a fucking dumbass. <laughs> Yeah, and then 
there's just this line in there about like, oh, dolphins don't hurt hurt people, so we're safe with them. And I'm like, I don't know. I That's feel incredibly like false. Dolphins can hurt people. Yeah. Dolphins are kind of creeps, is my understanding. Yeah, they're rapists. Yeah. So they get on their boat, and Dr. Ritter's already on it. And then he gives them a whole spiel about what he's been doing, and he says, the plankton also makes humans turn into fish, which makes no fucking sense. No, I mean, clearly something other than just growth hormone is happening here. Also, there's a weird food watch moment here where Dr. Ritter is like, would you rather get back in your life raft? And Billy says to himself, I'd rather eat fish guts with horseradish. And I'm like, what's wrong with horseradish? No, neither, this is neither here nor there. It just sounds like, first of all, horseradish would probably make it better. Mm-hmm. And second of all, I would think, so Arlstein and all of his goose kids seem to love old man sandwiches, <laughs> like ones that are stanky and weird. And so I am very surprised that there would be an anti-horseradish line in this book. Also, if my alternatives are be put on a life raft and adrift on sea forever and eat fish guts with horseradish, I know where my bread is buttered. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of caviar, right? It's like... Not exactly fish guts, but not not close fish to guts. It. Yeah, because of this plankton makes people into fish situation. Doctor Ritter wants to make all of them drink it, and so he grabs Billy first. And Doctor D again tries to appeal to his nature as a scientist and how scientists quote don't hurt people, which I found <laughs> hilarious. Man, I feel so complicated uh, saying things like that because of I really want people to get vaccinated. But yeah, scientists <laughs> yeah. in the goose first and in the real world have a long history of hurting people. Again, get vaccinated. It's not those scientists. Yeah. Also, this is the part that I was mentioning where when he says the whole plankton turns humans into fish, it says that Dr. Deep goes, is this fairy tale time? <laughs> and I was thinking, is Arl Stein even kind of getting annoyed with the story right now? Yeah. It's like, was he bored with his own book? Yeah. Billy grabs one of the plankton samples and is like, I'll drink it. And he does. But nothing happens. Dr. Ritter is really confused because apparently his assistant Mel is now a fish. And we're not sure why that needed to happen. Yeah. Well, I guess he was just experimenting on Mm -hmm. him. Now he's like, he's off playing with a blue marlin somewhere. (laughs) And I assume his other assistant, Adam, got killed by a seagull. Probably. I was thinking that that head in the fishbowl was kind of a foreshadowing to what's going to happen to all of us once these seagulls are unleashed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a fight. And then Dr. D wants to take Dr. Ritter to the International Sea Life Patrol. What would their jurisdiction even be? Who is the head of it? Is it a dolphin? Is it a whale? Is it because like a human wouldn't be right? Like I was picturing the Paw Patrol, but with sea creatures, like a little otter in in a sea captain's hat. Yeah. Well, he wants he wants Billy to tie them up, and we learn that Billy isn't good at knots, even though Doctor D tried to show him all the sailors' knots. Billy doesn't really retain information, as we've as we've discussed. And Doctor Ritter gets away, but then he decides instead of being turned into said International Sea Life Patrol, <laughs> he would rather drink plankton and become a fish. And so he does. Yeah, and he just flops to the side. The body horror in the transformation scene, which I'll read as my outro scene, is actually really cool. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like flaking skin and stuff. Yeah. Billy is like, should we be letting him get away? And Dr. Deep says, it doesn't matter. He'll be a fish forever. And he couldn't have lied about that. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason to believe that is the case. Right. Even if Dr. Ritter truly believed it, I see no evidence that he has actually tested this. I also wonder, does it turn you into a specific kind of fish? Or does it depend on you? What fish you look most like? <sighs> we, we did not get that information. Yeah. Sheena says, I'm scared and amazed. I'll never forget the strange things we saw this week. Like, this is so incredibly fucking clunky. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, that was a great vacation. What fun adventures. <laughs> like, you almost died a bunch of times. You've seen things that no human eyes have ever beheld. I know. It's like the end of a made-for-TV movie it or is. something. Well, I certainly learned a lesson today. Yeah. <laughs> Did you all at home learn a lesson? <laughs> 
It turns out that earlier when Billy was trying to prank Sheena, he had dumped out one of the research specimens and replaced it with iced tea and he was going to drink it and like gross her out. I'm not 100% sure how that's a prank on her. It's not like she's drinking it. It's like that movie with Kirk Cameron, Fireproof, (laughs) where he's pretending to drink hot sauce as a prank, but it's actually ketchup or something. Yeah. So that somebody else will drink it. Maybe that was the idea. Yeah. To trick her into drinking it. It doesn't make sense. No. It's very silly. Well, it also... And so he had drunk the iced tea so that he he wouldn't turn into a fish. But Sheena laughs and says, oh, we think alike. I did the same thing. And she grabs her bottle of iced tea and drinks it. But then she isn't sure if it really was iced tea. And it's unclear Mm. if she's going to turn into a fish. And that's the end. But probably not. I think she's probably pranking him, pretending like, oh, Mm -hmm. I drank the wrong bottle. Because Sheena's smart. Unless someone like moved around the tubes. Or she didn't clean it out well enough. Seems like there's a giant hole in their plan there. But also, you'd probably be able to tell Their plans aren't very good. Their plans are not very good. But I feel like if you were looking at a thing of plankton and a thing of iced tea, you could probably tell which is which. You probably could, yes. Unless it was really not well mixed iced tea. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Taxonomies. Which I've already stepped on twice. That's okay. They were both sort of minor. Okay. Well, tell me about your your taxonomies, wastebasket and otherwise. (laughs) Well, my first one, just to sort of get the obvious out of the way, animals too big. (laughs) There's a rich and storied history of that, particularly from sort of mid 20th century. Radiation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. King Kong, anaconda, tarantula, which I have not seen and will never see. (laughs) Tremors, Night of the Lepus, which I would still like to see because giant bunnies and eight-legged freaks with David Arquette, which I also don't want to see because spiders, but it's, I guess, a horror comedy. If someone could do a cut of it that only had David Arquette, <laughs> I would watch the hell out of that. Yeah, totally. I like that guy. If you want to intercut it with other things, so much the better. We won't know. <laughs> with Scream. <laughs> just we a- should just watch Scream is what I'm hearing. Oh, intercut with some scenes from Eight-Legged Freaks. Also, I mean, we've talked about this before, perhaps, but it is always kind of ironic that in these stories, nuclear radiation makes things big and powerful when it's practice... to like wasting away and full of cancer. Right. Yeah. I wonder if that also goes to, though, the fact that around the mid-century, the U.S. government in particular was trying to promote alternative uses for atomic energy. There was this group called Atoms for Peace, which was, mm. they. I've read a book that they put out, it was wild, but they were really trying to encourage people to develop other uses. And you can find all of these sort of mid-century propaganda films on YouTube, including one that the Disney Corporation did. And basically they were like, uh, men won't have to work anymore because everything will be nuclear powered. And also we are going to irradiate seeds and make tomatoes grow huge and things like that. So I think that some of that actually probably does come from propaganda that the government put out being like, no, nuclear power is great. Don't be worried about these weapons of mass destruction. It will solve everything. That's a good point, actually. The fish proposal that this Dr. Ritter has come up with sounds like just another version of that. A shortcut to ending world hunger by making things twice as big or 10 times as big. But not reforming anything about the food supply chain. Well, and that's what's funny about these radiation gone wrong stories is they're not responding to like, here is what's terrible about Chernobyl or whatever, right? But it's more like, here is the U.S.'s propaganda about how great nuclear power is going to be. And then here we're going to show you how if you did have big giant life, it might be actually bad too. Well, so I wonder, we're attacking the propaganda. Well, I, w- I wonder also if what it betrays is, yeah, the fact that that propaganda does not mix easily with the anxiety, the uh-huh. very well-founded anxieties, right? So it's like, well, maybe if we listen to the idea that like, oh, this is just perfectly safe and harmless, this is what we end up with. Right. Eight-legged freaks. <laughs> well, and it seems like these big animals are almost a substitute for something like a mushroom cloud, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the big scary thing that makes people feel tiny and helpless and s- destroys cities, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's a way 
of making a narrative that you can also watch. It isn't too close to home. It kind of mixes up all these different things. Mm -hmm. I also had one that was Overgrown Beasts, parentheses, and It's Our Fault. (laughs) The first one I actually thought of was a book I liked a lot as a kid called A Fish Out of Water. It was one of those books that looks like a Dr. Seuss book and has a little cat in the hat in the corner, but isn't by Dr. Seuss. It was by Helen Palmer. And um, I think it's illustrated by the same person who illustrated Go Dogs Go. Oh, But it's about this boy who gets a little goldfish called Otto, and the fish store owner is like, only feed him this much. And then the kid feeds him that much, and it's like, oh, he looks hungry. So he pours the whole box of fish food in, and he keeps getting bigger and bigger, and he has to put him into, like, a vase, and then into, like, a bathtub, and (laughs) then into the ocean. And I forget how he gets out of it, but it was a cool book. (laughs) But it's one of those for kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought about the Meg. The host, obviously, would Mm -hmm. be even closer. I guess the Meg isn't our fault, except that we shouldn't have gone poking around in its home. I've never seen it, actually. We should watch it. Yeah. This is a, you know, well, summer's not quite ended. I mean, technically it has, but still kind of hot. I like sharks. I'll watch sharks any day, any time of year. And then obviously Godzilla. So yeah. man-made problems. So I have one that's actually related to this, which is almost like a subset of what you're talking about, mm-hmm. which is science slash research disrupting the balance of nature. Yeah. And again, it like radioactivity is a big one, right? So there's Empire of Ants, in which apparently radioactivity makes ants too big. There's also Piranha from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Deep Blue Sea, which is about sharks that are made smarter in the pursuit of Alzheimer's research and then are become even more at- attacking. I know. And only LL Cool J survives to tell the tale. Yeah, because everyone else screen tested really poorly. <laughs> the woman who is supposed to be like the final girl, everyone hated her because it's all her fault. And yeah. they're like, but you know who is cool? LL Cool J and his parrot. <laughs> I, uh, I forgot he had a parrot. Um, yeah, we've really departed from the radiation narrative. Yeah, but it's still very much the sense of mess with nature and it'll come back to bite you in a very literal way, right? We don't seem to mind that in real life. And again, maybe maybe also Godzilla is an exception here because that is a Japanese movie about the horrors of what they underwent after the nuclear during and after the nuclear bombing. But if you think about these American ones, right, where it's scientists mess with things. And first of all, like we love to envision that we actually have the power to make these like very targeted changes in Uh nature, right? Like with CRISPR? (laughs) Well, yes. But like, you know, sharks are very smart, right? And, And maybe sort of specific food chain things, but we don't seem to mind like say dump a bunch of pollution uh, or and see what happens. Yeah. Make a bunch of landfills because like it's profitable. So so like there's this real disconnect between what we do in popular culture. And also, I mean, maybe also the fact that scientists slash some bad actors in industry are to blame as opposed to in our sort of larger structural lives. It's like, I don't know. I like having cheap clothes. Got to dump my stuff somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> what am bleached? I going to deal with my own trash? Yeah. What am I going to make less trash? No. What am I going to not have bleached paper towels? <laughs> and obviously a lot of that is not the individual consumer's fault. Right, like it's larger structural stuff, but yeah. So there's this uh, way in which we 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 sort of have this sort of horror outlet, right? Of science gone wrong, or like animals made in a lab, or something like that. That we're like, ah, maybe this is a bad idea, but we won't think about that in other other ways. Totally. Maybe also because we feel powerless to stop it. I think that's a big part of it. That's what's so nice about turning it into something like Godzilla or whatever, as you can say, okay, but we could just kill this one monster. It's a single entity. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it has eggs, but you know yeah. what I mean? like For sequel purposes. Yeah, but it seems more easy to handle than trying to take on all the different industries that are trying to shortcut and end up having devastating effects. Yeah, and to confront the ways in which... You know, you can't just, like, pick up a gun and shoot a giant spider because that's something anyone can do. But, like, not just anyone or not just one individual can take on these larger things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. 
I'm not going to go into a side on the Endangered Species Act, <laughs> but I kind of want to. I also had one that was irresponsible science. I was thinking of The Lost World mm-hmm. because, the, and I mean the Jurassic Park sequel, The Lost World, because um, we're seeing an example where this isn't contained. So we have scientists experimenting, it going wrong, but clearly, and this is one of the big scary things about Deep Trouble too. there's no island containing all these animals, Mm-mm. right? And that's what happens in The Lost World is they've started to get out into other islands and things. Yeah. But th- these ones are just in the ocean. There's yeah. no boundary. I also thought about The X-Files, Fight the Future, the movie, which I uh, yes. mentioned earlier I would like to watch. Yeah. So I was happy when you brought up actually Billy and Sheena as kind of a Mulder and Scully. Mm-hmm. That's another one where it's like, oh, yeah, we'll use bees for this purpose or crops or whatever. And it's like, this is obviously going to cause the virus to spread or whatever it is you've cooked up to spread. You can't contain the things the way you want to. And that's one of the big dangers is people trying to solve problems and using a lot of knowledge to do it, but like having too much faith in their ability to control the consequences. Absolutely. And then the other one I thought about with regard to this was a character I really love, which is Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It's such a good book. I, I read it with my mom. We do this like semi-monthly book club thing and <laughs> she picked it out. And Captain Nemo's this scientist who's did I tell you this? His family was killed by this colonizing force that invaded his country. No. Oh. And that's why he is so angry and has turned away from society. And he goes in, I mean, like legitimately angry. Yeah. But he goes into his, his submarine and is traveling around the world, learning all this stuff and studying fish in a way very similar to Dr. Deep. Where he's just <laughs> I had like, no idea he was supposed to be a scientist. Yeah, he is. And he's like, ah, oh, this fish is this. This fish is this. <laughs> and he's invented all these cool things. But he's like, I'm not sharing anything with anyone because people are terrible. Look at colonialism. It's wow. kind of a good book. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it's really sad, but it's good. I guess on a slightly related note, I had rival scientists slash scientists gone wild. <laughs> uh, I thought about the movie Reanimator, yes. or, which is based on the H.P. Lovecraft short story, Herbert West Reanimator, which famously introduced Miskatonic University, which is part of the larger Lovecraft verse and now lots of horror stuff. And also the really horrible Kevin Bacon movie Hollow Man. Since <laughs> on the, you know, I having... forgot about that movie. <laughs> yeah, where, um, oh, I want to watch that again. Um, I, I would. I think we're building a good list of shitty things to watch. I like Kevin Bacon. I do too. Although he's very much a villain in this. Mm. Where these scientists are trying to... God, it's been an ages since I saw it and I, I don't 100% remember the summary, but they're they're working on something that Kevin Bacon ends up testing on himself, which makes him go invisible. And then he's essentially undermining his own team because of these sort of petty rivalries and in so doing, showing maybe people shouldn't be invisible. <laughs> So he's not really a hollow man, except maybe metaphorically. Yeah, I think metaphorically, because oh, he still has cool. all his organs and stuff. Cool, cool. Speaking of creepy body stuff, I had human fish transformation, oh. which happens in a surprising lot of stuff. The first X-Men movie. Oh, yeah. Where the senator gets turned into mm-hmm. this fish creature and then kind of dissolves, which yeah. is what I imagine is going to happen to Dr. Ritter's creations. Including himself. And uh, I guess Ponyo apparently is about a fish that turns into a person. I, huh. I haven't watched that one yet. But this one I thought you'd be really excited about. There is a Clive Barker 1992 fable for kids. Oh! Yeah, called The Thief of Always, where this man basically convinces kids to come to his house because it's this house where it's full of stuff that's like a paradise for children. But then every day they're there is a year and he feeds off of their life force and he, oh, turns, wow. and he turns them into fish. Oh, that's amazing. I know. I kind of want to read it. Me too. <laughs> 
then I found a really schlocky 1994 movie that was called Plankton and then was retitled Creatures from the Abyss. Yeah, that's probably a good good retitling. <laughs> it's yeah, Plankton. <laughs> it's an Italian B horror film uh, where teens lost at sea stumble across a biology lab full of mutated fish. And it sounds troll to level ridiculous. That sounds very fun. So thinking about the ways in which ocean things are scary, I had Stranded on the Sea Survival Horror. Yes, that was my next one too. Oh, cool. Next and final. Yeah, so there's obviously open water. My elementary school randomly had this memoir called Adrift by Stephen Callahan, which is Mm -hmm. about how he was stranded on a lifeboat for 40 days and survived. Yeah. And then there's the Roald Dahl story for adults called Dip in the Pool, which is about this guy who has a gambling problem. And the ship that he's on, I think going to North America maybe, is having this betting pool about how quickly they'll get to where they're going and so he basically puts all of his money in this pool thinking that like there's a storm coming and that'll slow them down or something and the storm doesn't hit them so to slow them down he decides he's going to create a distraction and so he sees this woman on deck and is like hey notice me and then he jumps over the side thinking she'll go tell someone and then they'll stop and the boat will be delayed and it turns out she's like in the care of somebody else and she says this there's a man who jumped over the boat into the ocean and this woman just looks at her and says i think we maybe need to get you some more medicine and that's oh. it. And that that story terrified me. I read it as an adult and it terrified me. Just the idea that you're alone in the ocean and that's it. Oh, my God. Yeah, waiting to die stories very much uh, scare me. That is upsetting. Roald Dahl is great. Yeah. Okay. Like, not as a person, but, you know. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> not ethically, yeah. but kind of like Hitchcock. It's like, not a great guy, but good at making you disturbed. Yeah. I also had Lost at Sea slash Deserted Island. I added Castaway on there. Now, this was later, but I was thinking of how people thought that Elian Gonzalez, uh, the little boy who got lost at sea and then there was that whole debacle over whether he should go back to cuba in the late 90s some people got the idea that he was rescued by dolphins yeah and that's so stupid yeah which was a bunch of bullshit yeah what the hell (laughs) why are how does the news you know yeah yeah Um, there's a good episode of you're wrong about about the entire thing if you're curious one thing i really liked about this version of the deserted island stories or the lost at sea story because they're kind of similar and i was actually thinking similar to you of all the ones that are true story at sea for 438 days yeah or 72 days or eight a person yeah yeah exactly (laughs) there's a lot of those memoir type of ones and similar to stories like the swiss family robinson or castaway they're always these kind of moralizing stories about like well here's the kind of industry and thrift you need to survive and they also have this like individualism narrative and it feels very just i don't know 18th century enlightenment man can figure out whatever Mm -hmm. one thing i appreciate it's very true to rl stein no 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 they didn't figure out anything they almost died but dolphins came and saved them i guess yeah dumb luck saved them right it's a bunch of random stuff that happens people die or survive based on random stuff that's the rl stein way it is it's true i respect it you know i do too um so i also had deserted island horror actually and so which sweetheart but the um one i was really thinking the most about was last year's creep show animated special yeah the, the first story in it is called survivor type and it's about this surgeon who gets stranded on a desert island and resorts to auto cannibalism it was pretty cool it was yeah it was good it's interesting that deserted island is such a staple of our culture like what three books would you bring to a deserted island and it's like you're not going to be on one if i'm on a deserted island for real like i love books but my book situation is not the thing i'm worried about it'd be probably useful as kindling Did you have any other taxonomies? I had one that's also related to something I want to talk about. So GMO slash food supply horror. 
Oh, which yes. is, of course, where Soylent Green comes it's in, right? It's the story of my life since I've given up protein powder because it's all full of lead. Yeah. I keep trying to find one that isn't, and they're very hard to find. Yeah. So, and Soylent Green is, of course, about a future in which the oceans are so polluted and acidified that it can't support the giant human population. It's also about overpopulation. There is Snowpiercer, in which they are, the movie in which uh, they are taking vermin from the train and turning them into food for the lower classes. It's so bad. Yeah. Blade Runner 2049 has a nod to this, too, where they're protein farming which is like mealworms and stuff yeah it got me thinking about the 90s and fears of gmos yeah i don't know if that's a good time to talk about that now if we should do shared universe first let's do it actually you know what let's come back to it let's do shared universe and then come back to it oh okay i can't wait shared universe so this book is technically set one year after deep trouble 1995 and again a couple months after monster blood 3 well i was wondering if this tampering with the fucking world ecosystem if the consequences of that can be seen in any of the other books. I was wondering that too. And part of my problem was we are not near the ocean in most other books, mm-hmm. but if people are eating some of these fish, I don't know, maybe. Right, because presumably they're fishing it. So I had been thinking more about monster blood and how mm-hmm. that got dumped into all these places. It's gotten out into the environment over and over again, including in Atlanta, which is close-ish to the coast. And so I was wondering if perhaps, like, yes, Dr. Ritter is injecting growth hormone into plankton, but that's not doing anything at all. <laughs> and in fact, there's just monster blood floating yeah. in the ocean. I mean, maybe whatever he's injecting is the thing that turns people into fish. I don't know. But the, the separate thing is happening, which is monster blood is infecting fish. Well, I was wondering a sort of a reverse thing, which is, is what he is injecting into the plankton somehow the origin of monster blood or similar to what monster blood is made of? Yeah, that's possible. True. Whatever substance it is that makes monster blood grow out of control, mm-hmm. which presumably Sarah Beth must have used. Mm-hmm. I know we've decided to completely forget that that was the story in the original series that she cursed it but remember we couldn't tell if her books were science books or magic books so Mm -hmm. maybe she just added some some additive to the monster blood and that's what made it grow and it was the same one i'd be curious to know how much the world of magic in the gooseverse overlaps with the mad scientist world Mm -hmm. how much do they collaborate or exchange ideas or how much does one claim to be the other right like take credit for the other's ideas Mm -hmm. i could totally see there being a bunch of mad scientists taking credit for these witches ideas. Yeah, the very gendered work of witches, yeah. It's just like in the late 17th, early 18th century when these various craft traditions and practices like midwifery or or whatever um, suddenly became sciences and no, you can't practice it anymore because you don't have this degree, even though I have literally no more knowledge than you just what I've taken from you. I don't know how this would work because we said goat worms was set in like Ohio-ish, right? Yeah. Because there's giant worms and giant insects in that. So I don't know mm-hmm. how that, if oh, that is related point. at all. Well, I mean, we don't know how many giant worms there are across the U.S. of goosebumps. Or if like a giant seagull eats something and then travels, poops somewhere, yeah. and then it sort of travels throughout the U.S., worms eat it, they grow, mm-hmm. something else eats those worms, etc. Well, I think that makes perfect sense. It's not going to be contained, right? Mm-hmm. So probably any of the giant creatures we've seen could be traced back to this. Or to that monster blood that was buried. Yeah, or to both. I mean, we don't know also how long Dr. Ritter's been doing this experiment, where else he might have done it, who else has used this growth thing before him. So actually, I was thinking similarly whether, you know, something else that happened in 1995 was we got to meet King Jelly Jam. That's true. Who I realize is supposed to be a mutation from some (laughs) jello. But maybe there was also some seepage of growth hormone or whatever is actually behind 
drained the monster blood and the plankton. Uh, and he was just like, I'm horrible. Kill me. Yeah. I'm not like, supposed to exist. I can't wait till someone stops taking care of me so I can <laughs> die. And then the same thing is I was wondering whether maybe the pink blob that's that jellyfish is similar or related to the blob that ate everyone. So if this is a book for blob children, right, maybe that's the blob monster's nod to, oh, you thought that the humans were going to get them, but don't worry, they got away. Oh, that's a great (laughs) idea. And like, of course, the humans thought they were fighting, but they were actually just hugging. Yeah. Humans are so stupid. Yeah, they are so violent. Yeah, so it could be that if we're assuming this is written by that same blob monster, or it could be we're looking at a case of rapid evolution where it may be in 1995, there were just these big jellyfish but maybe mm-hmm. by the time of the blob that ate everyone, humans have really been outdone by the blobs, you know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Outcompeted. Be- yeah, exactly. And they've developed the ability to live on land and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I was wondering what happened to the mermaids. I think they decided to stay far the fuck away from any boats. <laughs> like, I think they realized we really cannot risk coming into contact with humans or having them see us. That makes sense. I think that's a good call. It's better than the alternative I thought of, which is that maybe they were killed off by these mutations happening in the water. Or they were caught and put in a zoo. Yeah. But in any case, I was thinking, we don't have mermaids in this, but we do have people who turn into fish. Mm-hmm. So I don't know whether Arlstein was like, fuck you not liking my fish people. I'm putting mm-hmm. some in. Yeah. Or if there is maybe some related phenomenon happening here that can turn people into fish that also can result in half fish, half people. So it was like an earlier iteration of this Mm -hmm. where just some kids were playing in the water and got some ocean water in their mouth and then all of a sudden they're mermaids. But like, yeah, they're half fish. So maybe he's just, Dr. Ritter has amplified something that was already naturally growing in the area. Or had already dumped something in the area. I know. And now he's made it stronger. So it turns you all the way into a fish. Which doesn't make less sense than anything that is in this book. Do you want to talk to me about GMOs? I'd love to. GMOs, genetically modified organisms, which is the targeted, you know, modification of specific genes. The first GMO was an antibiotic-resistant tobacco plant, and that was in 1982. Ooh, like in The Simpsons tobacco. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's important to, to just remind everyone that, like, we say GMO and we mean that specific kind of thing, as opposed to the way that we have otherwise genetically modified organisms through, like, domestication, right? right. Like cultivating like... wheat or turning wolves into dogs. China was the first country to commercialize transgenic plants, introducing a virus-resistant tobacco in 1992. Apparently, tobacco is a big, big deal. I didn't know they, uh, that it got viruses. I don't know. I guess probably any living organism can. I'm just picturing it with, like, a little cold compress and a <laughs> thermometer. <laughs> and I don't want to go to plant school today. Yeah. And then the first transgenic livestock were produced in 1985 by micro-injecting foreign DNA into rabbit, sheep, and pig eggs. First animal to synthesize transgenic proteins in their milk were mice, of course engineered to produce human tissue plasminogen activator. It was applied to sheep, pigs, cows, and other livestock. But the big thing that lots of, I think, people who grew up in the 90s slash were alive in the 90s might be familiar with, the flavor saver, (laughs) which is a genetically modified tomato. Yeah. Do you remember hearing about, like, maybe not the specific name, but the idea of, like, tomatoes having longer shelf life? I remember tomatoes were the big first one where people were like, it's Frankenfood. Yes. So in 1994... It has fish in it, right? I don't know about that. Okay, go ahead. I just remember there being one type of these things. Where they used fish genetics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 1994, CalGene um, attained approval to commercially release the Flavor Saver Tomato, which was the first genetically modified food. And it was first sold in 94, and it ceased production in 97 because it was exorbitantly expensive. And also, (laughs) I think everyone freaked the fuck out about it. The reason they started making this is tomatoes have a short shelf life, right? And then there are all these supply chain problems with getting them to 
the store in time for people to buy them and not being too mushy, not being just sad and kind of sour. Yeah, exactly. So essentially what they usually do, they pick them while they're green or unripe and they prompt them to ripen through ethylene gas just before they go to store. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing that like bananas emit. Like that's why you're, you shouldn't put bananas next to other fruit because they'll cause them to over ripen. Or mm. if you have an avocado that's really hard, you can put in a bag with a banana and it'll ripen faster. Wow. Yeah. And it, it, so it acts as a, a plant hormone. But the thing is, because the tomato doesn't complete its natural growing process, the flavor suffers. And so basically, Calgene said, what if we slowed down the ripening process and thus prevent it from softening while allowing the flavor to develop? Theoretically, this would allow it to fully ripen on the vine and still be shipped long distances without going soft. Yes. Unfortunately, it was disappointing in this respect, apparently, as it had a positive sh- uh, effect on shelf life, but not on firmness. So they still had to be harvested the same way. And initially, it didn't have any effect on the flavor. I, I guess later they improved the flavor just through traditional like plant breeding, breeding the flavor saver with tomatoes that taste better. Sounds like you could just be sending people tomatoes that taste better. Yeah. <laughs> or getting them from closer by. Because there's a lot of places in the country that grow tomatoes. Yeah. Like, I mean, even when I lived in Washington State, Western Washington is not good for tomatoes, but you can still grow tomatoes. I think part of the issue, too, is trying to get them to, to people off season so that you can have tomatoes oh. in the supermarket, like in the middle of winter. Isn't that what canning's for? <laughs> well, who doesn't like tomato sauce? Like, you used to not. <laughs> tomato sauce is not my favorite. Is that why we never have spaghetti? No, we just never make spaghetti. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so obviously then, of course, there are lots of conversations about like, how will I know if there's GMOs in my food, which obviously we still have things that are labeled like contains GMOs or GMO free or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think probably part of what contributed to these conversations in the 90s was that the FDA said that special labeling for the G- for the modified tomatoes wasn't necessary because they have the essential characteristics of non-modified tomatoes. And specifically, there was no evidence for health risks and the nutritional content was unchanged. <laughs> and so the failure of the flavor saver has been attributed to Calgene's inexperience in the business of growing and shipping, presumably also to the just like horrible like public stuff, I would guess. So they made history, but it was so expensive that they were never profitable and were eventually acquired by Monsanto. Oh, God. Yeah. So speaking of like fucking modifying genes for shitty purposes. Well, and speaking of someone coming up with an idea and then someone else being like, I'm just going to take credit for it and then do it in a worse way. Dr. Ritter is Monsanto. Kind of. I mean, Monsanto technically does do it better in that they make it cost effective by destroying lives and ecosystems. From their perspective, it's better than Calgene, right? Very open-minded of you to see it from Monsanto's <laughs> perspective. Thank God someone is. Yeah. They're doing it worse from our perspective in terms of global harm and, you know, human collateral. I'm just wondering where deep trouble falls in this. Well, I feel like it's reflective of that sort of conversation mm-hmm. around GMOs. Like, oh, that's bad. Like, right. like, oh, you don't want to mess with nature. In the 90s, and so this is a little bit later than Deep Trouble. This is 96 to 99. There was also this big scandal in the UK. No, this is during Deep Trouble, 97. Yeah, yeah. So it just oh, sort of postdates set, it. But, but when the book is published. When the book is published, yeah. So Zeneca produced a tomato paste that used a similar technology to Flavor Saver, and they were sold in Sainsbury's and Safeway. Like, so so major supermarket chains in the UK. And it at one point was outselling normal tomato paste, but people got really worried about it. Basically, there was this whole shift in public perception, in part doing, due to a report by Dr. Arpad Putztai, who is a researcher for the Rowett Institute. And he made all of these claims about the detrimental health effects of lab rats fed on a g- diet of genetically modified potatoes. Is that true? No. So it was all fake. The claims that he was making was contradicted by his own evidence. But, but basically, it sort of ruined 
and everything. And Sainsbury's and Safeway both pledged that none of their house brand products would contain GMOs. Again, it's in the air, right, of people being worried about this. Well, and it's just so funny when consumer backlash actually has an effect yeah. and when it doesn't do anything. Yeah. You know, so it's like, OK, I guess we we're protected from something irrelevant, but not like pesticides or lead. Right. But that's why we have all this labeling now of like mm-hmm. contains no GMOs or whatever. But yeah, so I feel like deep trouble to the whole like, oh, injecting them with growth hormone is, is yeah. just very much like of its time in that regard. It is. And of ours, obviously. That actually helps me understand something, which was I was kind of weirded out by, which is when Sheena and Billy and Dr. Deep are locked up in the basement of this motorboat. Mm-hmm. While Billy's trying to get free, Dr. Deep and Sheena are like, well, isn't is this actually a bad thing? You know, yeah. if it could end world hunger, wouldn't it be a good thing? And Dr. Deep is like, yeah, but we don't know what the fallout might be. And that is kind of the conversation yeah. that happened around GMOs, right? Like people on the one hand saying, well, this will be good. Like we'll have more crop resistant crops or wait. We'll have more (laughs) disease resistant crops and we'll be able to feed everyone. And don't you know how many people there are around here? Well, and that's what's so stupid about the conversations around GMOs is that the problems of world hunger are not about there necessarily not being enough food or the ability to grow enough food because of the number of people we have. It's about the global food supply chain. So it doesn't matter if you have bigger fish because the global south is has monocrop enforced on it. Like those countries cannot grow their own food. They have to grow stuff for export and then they have to purchase stuff from the global north to feed their own population. So it is entirely a, a created problem. Don't even get to keep quinoa anymore. Have to ship it. Yeah. So there's a great book called Stuffed and Starved by Raj Patel that, uh-huh. that goes into this. It's a great um, book. It's going to upset you, but read it. Yes. Really, really good. I highly recommend. Also, I think that that actually fits into one theory point I had, which is just that it's just very appropriate that this boat is called the Cassandra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, here's a warning. Here's a warning. And everyone just charges ahead with their stupid plans. I can't read that. <laughs> That's what Billy said. It's got more than four letters. Yeah. On a scale of one to five bewares, what would you rate Deep Trouble? 2.25. Wow. I'm not trying to be mean. I just thought it was, you know... I like sea stories, but I thought this was a bunch of random stuff. Again, it reminded me of going through It's a Small World. Yeah. It's like, here's a thing. Here's a thing. <laughs> but I do like it actually more now that you put it in the context of GMOs. I'd say three because there wasn't anything that was like blatantly offensive. It was just a bunch. Of, yeah, you're right. It's a bunch of stuff happening. It was kind of boring. I just was slapping my head about like, why are you not quicker on the uptake? <laughs> I don't know. There were a couple moments, right, where it's like I said, I get genuinely scared in stories where it's like, you're just waiting to die in this impossible situation. Like um, life. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but nothing that made me so angry that it was like, two. Yeah. What are we reading next week? Next, we are reading The Haunted School. That'll be fun. We've yeah. got open questions about ghosts, and maybe they'll all be wrapped up in this third to the last book. Yeah, I can't believe we're so close to the end. Or fourth to the last, I guess. Well, we want to know what you all think. Do you have a favorite GMO? Do you have a favorite deep trouble? Mermaids or no mermaids? Which do you prefer? Tell us. By writing us an email at saypodanddie at gmail.com. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at saypodanddie. While you're on your phone machine, why not rate, review, and subscribe? Leave us five bewares on Apple Podcasts. It helps us reach more goosepunks. Listener beware. Those Those were the the scares. scares. Good boo. Good boo. Dr. Ritter's skin began to flake. Then it turned scaly. His body began to shrink. His clothes slid off the slick scales. His hair fell away. His whole body shrank and flattened. Dr. Ritter's arms shriveled into fins. His legs melted together, melted into a fishtail. He flopped on the deck. One flat eye stared glassily up at us as he flapped his tail. With one great flip of his tail, the fish plopped over the side of the deck and into the water. We watched him as he dove under the surface. 
Dr. D put his arms around us. I guess that adventure is over, he sighed. Sheena walked over to the cabinet of plankton bottles. She turned to me and narrowed her eyes at me. Hey, Billy, you drank a bottle of plankton too, so why didn't you turn into a fish like Dr. Ritter? Well, I was really angry after you played that trick on me. I spent all day and night trying to think up a good trick to play on you. I took one of the plankton bottles and dumped the plankton. I washed the bottle, then I poured iced tea into it. I was going to bring you in here and say, Hey, Sheena, want to see me drink plankton? Then I'd gulp down the iced tea and totally gross you out. Sheena laughed. I don't believe it, she gasped. I played the same trick on you. The exact same trick. I put iced tea in a bottle, too. Watch. She pulled a bottle from the end of the cabinet, ripped off the stopper, and gulped it down. Then she made a weird face. Oh, wow, she groaned. Did I drink the right bottle? 